Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a non-profit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. His Excellency Ambassador Fahmy has been very vocal about the uh, political will and intense involvement required by the USA to enhance the chance of success and peace in this region. Ambassador Fahmy's celebrated and long diplomatic career has focused on curbing nuclear proliferation, and the ambassador has published numerous books and articles on this issue. His decorated past includes his roles from 1978 to 1991 as the second secretary of the Egyptian mission to the United Nations, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, first secretary to the United Nations, counselor and senior disarmament official for the Department of International Organizations, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. <clears throat> in 1999, he was appointed ambassador to Japan. And in 1999, he became a member of the United Nations Secretary General's Advisory Board and was also appointed to the Egyptian ambassador, is appointed the Egyptian ambassador to the United States, a position he has held since then. You've probably seen Ambassador Fahmy on primetime television appearances such as CNN, Nightline, BBC, Ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you the Egyptian ambassador to the United States, His Excellency Nabil Fahmy. Sam, th thank you very much. Uh, I'm really touched to, to be introduced by Sam uh, for many reasons. I've, I've been a very strong supporter of Egyptian-American relations, and I think Sam and, and Dr. Dabous and, and IPR uh, in many ways are testimony to the importance of the relationship and how much can be done that is mutually beneficial to both sides. So I want to thank you and your family for everything you've done in that regard. I also want to thank uh, the World Affairs Council for again hosting me. I'm probably the ambassador that's taken advantage most of World Affairs Councils around America over the last five, six years. At the end of every talk, I do something bizarre or say something strange to make sure I'm invited again uh, <laughs> the next time around, but uh, I owe them a, a debt of gratitude. It's extremely important for uh, foreigners to have a chance to speak to Americans, and I would hope it's useful for Americans to listen to a foreign uh, point of view. Uh, just so that I don't surprise anybody, I'm not by nature diplomatic. One clear example or evidence of this is that I'm asked, uh, I've agreed to speak at the same time as your president, even though I'm supposed to be uh, accredited to the president. A and secondly, I'll admit that since Sam, you mentioned, mentioned the Dallas Cowboys, I'm actually a New York Giants fan. <laughs> so I know that hurt, but I had to say it. I, I want to talk to you about the prospects for peace in the, in the Middle East. Some may find, choose this topic, uh, but I do it I do so because I find that we are at a very bizarre point in the history of Arab-Israeli negotiations in particular, and I will dwell very quickly, if I have time remaining, about the other regional issues. I say it's a bizarre point because on the one hand, 
it's a point of tremendous clarity and tremendous disbelief at the same time. I've been doing this for 30 odd years. Uh, initially, when we never thought there would be an Egyptian Israeli peace. And there was one six years after I started my career as a diplomat, actually less than six years after uh, that. We never thought that people would really be talking about a Palestinian state. And they are talking about a Palestinian state. There's no agreement on it, but it is part of the jargon of how this is going to be resolved. You would never have thought back then, and frankly, 15 years ago, not only back then, halfway in my career, that you could talk about normal relations between Israel and the Arab world that was not on the neighbors of, on the, on the uh, borders of Israel. In other words, beyond those that had been in conflict with Israel. But all of the Arab world has committed itself to having normal relations with Israel, like anybody else, if there is an Arab-Israeli peace. There has never been a point in time of greater clarity in terms of what is required to achieve peace between Arabs and Israelis, particularly peace between Palestinians and Israelis. And I think the options are quite clear. And my motivation for trying to do this, even though we also at our are at a point of disbelief, uh, are quite logical. If we do not achieve peace based on a two-state solution, Palestinian state besides Israel, in the near term, I don't really see another option for having peace between Palestinians and Israelis in this next generation. I do not believe that there is another option that both sides agree upon. Uh, while some on both sides of the paradigm may argue, let's go for a one-state solution. But a one-state solution is not a compromise between two peoples that have completely different narratives of and conflicting aspirations. Uh, there's a sense of urgency and uh, importance that I believe is, is imperative, really, in trying to achieve uh, peace between Palestinians and Israelis based on a two-state solution. I mentioned clarity. If I allow myself to speak or to analyze the political situation in Israel, not only do you have a labor party that accepted Palestinian state as part of its program years back, you actually have a Likud party that debated a Palestinian state quite substantially, and Kadima, that is right of center by any definition, that agrees to that the solution will be based on a two-state solution, a Palestinian state besides uh, Israel. Frankly, that is something that I couldn't have imagined, as I said, when I started uh, my career. But as is always the case in any negotiations, we may agree on the utopian answer of a two-state solution, but end up disagreeing endlessly on what are the details. Here again, there's reason 
to conclude that there's clarity. Nobody in the center on, in Israel or among Palestinians who believes in a two-state solution expects that it can be achieved without resolving four issues. The size of the territory of the Palestinian state, where you're going to draw the boundaries, issue of Jerusalem to a mutually agreeable solution, the issue of refugees that, on the one hand, takes into account the aspirations, the right of the Palestinians, but on the other hand, does not negate the fact that a two-state solution will be based on a state of Israel and a Palestinian state. And ultimately, security. Security, more often than not, is defined as ensuring Israel that it is not the target of surprise attack, but it also, frankly, involves providing uh, the Palestinians with a sense of security against uh, possible threats from abroad. Let me deal with these four issues a little bit, and you'll see why I think there is clarity. On Jerusalem, every person I talk to on both sides of this debate realizes that Palestinians will never accept a solution that does not involve the non-Jewish part of Jerusalem being their capital. And Israelis will never accept a solution that involves a divided Jerusalem. The, that's clarity that can be a function of an agreement. Our position has been and will continue to be that what is not Jewish should be part of the Palestinian capital, what is Jewish is Israel's capital, and we reach mutual agreement on regulations and norms and practices to ensure the openness, free access of the, of the city for, for, for everybody and the sanctity of religious sites of all faiths to, to, for everybody. There's not going to be a two-state solution without two capitals in Jerusalem. On the issue of refugees, I think we're all wasting each other's time when we debate whether or not the Palestinians have the right of return or compensation. One, because that right is codified in international law through UN resolutions, including those, by the way, that established the state of Israel. But two, because negotiating one's rights is really a silly exercise. What we should be negotiating is how you exercise the right not whether you have the right. You do not give away your right. You determine how you want to exercise or not exercise that right. So there's an endless debate about rights when actually we should be focusing on how do you implement that right in a manner that's consistent with the overall package of a two-state solution in very precise terms, and I'm, I'm simplifying the case a little bit. We negotiated this previously in 2000 in Taba, just before President Clinton left, left office and, and Prime Minister Barack left office with uh, President Arafat at the time. And we didn't reach it. But the basic logic of what we were doing and which would ultimately be the answer to this problem will be the right being the right. The implementation will mean that most of the Palestinians will be returning 
to the Palestinian territory. Some will decide to be compensated. And those that return to Israel will not change the nature of the state of Israel. That's the kind of compromise that I see being a basis of something that we can evolve. But again, only as part of resolving this completely. Territory. The Security Council in 1968 decided that resolving this conflict will be based, between Arabs and Israelis, will be based on ending the occupation that occurred in 1967 and the recognition of the right of all states in the region to live in security, that of course included Israel. Whether it applies to the Palestinian territory or ultimately to Syria thereafter, there will not be a solution which does not provide the Palestinians with the same landmass as exists between in the West Bank of the River Jordan and Gaza. Whether they decide to modify some parts of the geography of that landmass will be by mutual consent, but it will not be in a, substan in a substantial uh, manner. So the solution will be basically be on the contours of the 1967 borders, as a Palestinian state and the other side of the state will be for Israel. It's not going to be 82%. It's not going to be 92%. It's not going to be 60%. It's going to be the same land mass. Because once you start negotiating the size of the land, then you end up violating a basic principle that you cannot acquire territory by force. And once you do that, then you break down the whole logic of resolving the Arab-Israeli conflict based on international law, and you resolve it based on a balance of power. The problem with that is that in the future, balances of powers change, and you can come back and say, well, the balance of power has changed, and since this is the basis for the solution, we look at it again. We are not looking for reopening this conflict or the debate about the solution 10 years from now. We're looking for closing it once and for all now, and that requires basing it on international law. The last issue is security. Initially, when, as I was growing up, the logic always was there's a huge Arab force out there, and Israel is a small country that is engulfed by all of these Arab forces. And therefore, the issue was that there's an existential threat against Israel from the Arab world. If you look at the situation clearly today, there is no existential threat against Israel because Egypt is at peace with Israel. And Israel is quite a strong country militarily. But there's no doubt that Israel feels it lives in insecurity. And I understand that. One, because there's an ongoing conflict that never ends. And secondly, because of the violence on, on an individual basis that Israelis are faced. But that also applies, by the way, to the other side. The, I make this point because to solve the security problem, you ultimately need to solve the conflict. The threats to Palestinians and Israelis is now or are now about individual security, personal security, rather than about an army invading Israel or an army invading the, 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 the Palestinian territories. Frankly, if the Israelis could get out of most of the Palestinian territories, they'd love to, but they don't want to negotiate the details, and that's the problem. And if the Palestinians 
could reach an agreement where they have their territory, they have to accept a situation where Israelis are not, do not feel threatened inside Israel per se. Over and above that, we will of course have to have arrangements to prevent surprise attack against Israel from within the, the, uh, uh, the, the territories withdrawn from, for example from a third party, and ultimately some defensive security measures for the Palestinians. Now I say this and many of you may think this is very boring because he's stating the obvious. And that's my basic point. I'm stating the obvious. Uh, it is obvious to almost anybody who's serious about pursuing peace in the Middle East that there is no other two-state solution than the one I'm outlining. But then we have the disbelief. The disbelief is that neither side believes the other side can or wants to do this. The Palestinian narrative, the Arab narrative, is that Israel is so strong, it doesn't feel a need to do this. And America supports Israel, so there's no support, there's no pressure to resolve this. The Israeli narrative is that now that they can't blame it on Arafat, Abu Mazen's a nice guy, but he can't deliver. And the problem between Hamas and, and, uh, and uh, the Palestinian Authority with the division in the West Bank and, and Gaza makes it not logical to make that compromise even if he is a nice guy because the problem will continue to, to, to fester on. And more and more, you see the politics on both sides moving towards the right. In other words, the population on both sides is moving more and more towards a situation of disbelief. I urge you to look seriously at this issue on an urgent basis because as some of you may have heard me say, we are really threatened by what I've often used, often called the two Ds, demographics and demonization. In the absence of a peace pro a, a resolution of this conflict, in the near term, demographics on both sides will make it very, very difficult to resolve this 10 years from now, both in terms of the numbers in the West Bank and Gaza, but also in terms of the politics of the demographics inside Israel and among Palestinians. If you look at Israeli youth, they are becoming more rigid on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. If you look at Palestinian youth, they're more frustrated and consequently they're more angry on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. So if we don't provide a vehicle to move forward now, especially in a global open region, and it is becoming more global and more open, this demographic problem and the demonization problem of not believing uh, in the other side will ultimately make it extremely difficult to solve the Palestinian problem in the future, Palestinian problem in the future. Now, some will say, well, how can you solve this with the Palestinians divided among the West Bank and Gaza? And Palestinians will say, well, how can we solve this if the Prime Minister of Israel is domestically weak, being challenged, may have the Winograd report or this or that. And all of these are valid issues, but they're also excuses. 
President Abu Mazen is mandated by the Palestinian people, including by Hamas, by the way, before they got into their argument, that he can negotiate with Israel any deal he wants. And he will then have to put it to the Palestinian people for its endorsement. Even when Hamas and Abu Mazen agreed with each other, he had that mandate. He has that mandate today as the legitimately elected president of the Palestinian territories. And I believe that if allowed to negotiate, and if the Israelis cooperate with him, and they reach a deal, he will be able to put whatever is agreed upon to the Palestinian people, and they will have to make a choice. Do we accept the solution presented? If that is accepted, then Hamas will either have to join and change its policies, or leave their positions as elected officials, because the people will have spoken on that particular point. The same applies in Israel, frankly. Any agreement, the Egyptian-Israeli agreement, was ultimately put to the Knesset. Any agreement reached between Palestinians and Israelis will be put to the Knesset. And it will be challenged by the right and the left. Everybody who wants to be the next Prime Minister of Israel will challenge the agreement. Because of those circumstances, because of the pressures on both sides, I don't believe that we can go for interim steps where the Israeli Prime Minister or the Palestinian President ask their people to believe in them and their sound judgment that their counterpart has agreed to take these 10 steps and will deliver on the rest in the future. I don't think it would be agreeable for Israelis or Palestinians. The only possible way we can move this forward is for both sides to go to their people and tell them, this is the deal. There are no ifs, no buts, no promises. Do you want to accept this in exchange for peace and ending this conflict, or do you want to take a position that we will continue to strive for another generation in trying to resolve this? I don't believe that we have that choice because I'm worried about demonization and I'm worried about demographics. Now, many will say, well, why now? With all this weakness, our first answer is because if we don't do it now, it gets worse. And that's frankly, I think, enough of a, an answer to urge anybody who's seriously committed to peace to try to take these risks. Secondly, neither side will be, will be accepting promises. This will be the final deal. It's not going to be like it was between Egypt and Israel with interim agreements uh, and, excuse me, disengagements uh, first or between Arafat and, and Rabin in the past where you had interim agreements moving forward. This has to come once and for all to closure. The U.S. and Egypt have an extremely important role to play in this. As much as I believe that Israelis and Palestinians will ultimately choose peace rather than continued conflict, if they're offered closure, if they're offered a promise, if they're asked to give up something, the answer will be no. If they're offered a peace deal, I think you get a different answer completely, quite a positive one. T on a lighter note, if you follow the polls in America, depends on what question you ask what, the what questions the pollsters ask, you get a completely different answer, and sometimes you get different results in the elections. Um, seriously speaking, 
if Israelis and Palestinians are told this is the offer, I, as, as somebody who's negotiated this once in a long time, believe that they will accept this as closure. And of course, each one's obligations are contingent on implementing the other side's obligations. But there are politics involved. And given the situation in Israel and among the Palestinians, this will not move forward unless America and Egypt play a, a paramount and, and highly uh, progressive role. The Palestinians will not be able to take the difficult decisions necessary unless they feel that Egypt will stand behind them and defend those agreements. And frankly, the Israelis will not take those decisions unless they feel that America is supportive of the agreement. And frankly, if unless they feel that America feels that peace in the Middle East is in America's national interest. This is not only being done for Israel's interest and for Arab interest, but also for America's interest and for Egypt's interest. And I will give you just two points, and I will close because I know I'm supposed to leave time for questions. There is not one issue of conflict in our region, and you know we have a lot of conflict in the region. There's not one issue that has more of a spillover effect into the other issues, Iraq, Lebanon, terrorism, you name it, or in how the region looks at you. There's not one issue that's more important than the Arab-Israeli issue, particularly the Palestinian-Israeli issue. And it affects not only your interests, but that's what you should be interested in. It also affects my interests as Egypt. I need to create 750,000 new jobs every year. To do that with an economy of 100, with a GDP of $110 billion a year is almost an impossible task. So I need to have a region that is an attractive venue for investment, be it domestic or foreign. And frankly, you have to be in the military industry, and I know Lockheed is with us here, but to look at the region uh, that is in so much volatility and want to invest there, if any other industry will say, well, why don't I go and invest in Latin America or in Asia or in, or in this or in that? So Egypt is in this for its own national interest. We need to grow and, and put forward a positive future for our people. And that means uh, not only are we morally support, supportive of a Palestinian-Israeli peace, but we also do it for our own national interest. And we will do that and take the risks for that purpose. America is the dominant global power in the world today. One area that is of strategic interest to you is the Middle Eastern area. And if you do not make an extra effort on resolving the Arab-Israeli conflict, especially the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, this issue, this area will continue to move away from America, and you will continue to feel that, um, um, that many of your interests unrelated to this issue are at stake. Over and above the fact that if, and I believe you are, the, you are the leaders of the modern world, you have an obligation to do that for international peace and security. If you're a friend of Israel, you have an obligation to do that because that serves Israel's interests. And if you're the friend of the moderate Arab countries, you have an obligation to do that because it serves our interest uh, as well. Now, I've gone longer than I should have, and therefore I won't dwell into the 
Syrian-Israeli conflict uh, or the Lebanese conflict uh, in any detail. But the basic principle is the same. If we're going to uh, solve the Syrian-Israeli conflict, it will have to involve ending the lands occupied in, in 1967 and ultimately having normal relations between Israel and uh, Syria. The um, same applies in a way uh, to the Lebanese issue. Let me, however, close with um, a few comments. I'd be happy, of course, after that to take as many questions on any subject that you have in mind, including issues that I have not raised. Everywhere I go in America, I take liberties with my American audiences. One, because I like to do it. Secondly, because I know that you have the confidence in yourselves to accept criticism or, if you want, pushing you a little bit, as long as you think that the request or the criticism is, is rational, uh, even if you disagree with it. And thirdly, because I've been here so long, well, I can sort of take liberties in it from that perspective as well. As an Egyptian, from my own perspective, it is extremely important for me to see America stop thinking of itself as a superpower and to transform itself from a superpower where your foreign policy is based on a threat perception. For example, the Soviet Union was the threat in the past to a global power where your foreign policy will be based on the same principles that your business community applies. Investing in opportunities that exist worldwide, calculating risk factors, profit margins, invest in the international community, focus on international relations as an opportunity, not only as a fear. For the next 10 years, there will not be a nation state equal to America, if not 20 years. And unless you transform your foreign policy to that of opportunity-based, you're not going to have much of a foreign policy. And uh, Egypt can't afford that. We are very supportive of America, even when we differ with you on some details. We are very supportive of America's role in the world. And we need you to play that role. If you really want to continue to be the leader of the modern world politically, socially, or economically, you have to be able to invest in small countries like Mali. It can't only be when you're scared of the Soviets or the Chinese or of Islamofascism or this or that. You, your community, people like you, have to so be supportive of their politicians when they say, well, we need to give foreign aid to this small country in sub-Saharan Africa. Because if we don't create a larger economy there, if we don't deal with AIDS there, if we don't deal with endemic diseases, uh, ultimately this will come back in a global society and hit us, hit our own interests. That's the perspective that we need from that a country like my own, Egypt needs, from America in the years to come. Okay. Nobody else can play this role. 
And if you don't approach it this way, frankly, your foreign policy will be haphazard and always short term. Because, as I said, there is no major nation state threat to you uh, now as there was in the past. I said I will take luxuries, and as, as usual, I, liberties, excuse me, and as usual, I did. But I, I make that point in good faith. And let me conclude by saying, by offering some self criticism of my own country. That way, when you criticize me, I can say, well, I criticize my own country as well. Egyptians, and I'm a passionate Egyptian, for 7,000 years have lived on 4%, 4 to 5% of our territory, the two banks of the Nile and the Delta. We have a saying back home for the Arabic speakers here, those that you know or what you know is better than what you don't know. The concept of change is not something that we're particularly comfortable with. We like stability. We like to understand what's happening next. And unless we have a major crisis, we are not a large immigrant society. Uh, the number of expats abroad are limited, uh, much less, for example, than Lebanon that has many, many fewer uh, uh, numbers in the population. As we continue to do better, and frankly, we're growing at 7% a year now economically, and that's helping uh, create a large number of jobs, although we still have a way to go. We need, as Egyptians, to embrace change more confidently. And I say this not because it serves America, because it serves Egypt. We live in a global society where change will come to you if you don't go to it. If you don't effect change, it will be affected by somebody else. And the time span for that change to affect you is much shorter today than it was a generation ago. You cannot close your borders because ideas travel on the internet. Money is fungible all over the world. So unless you engage the world more proactively, more aggressively, aggressive in the positive sense, we will not be able to continue to play our leading role in, in, the, in, in the international community, not as leading as, as you as America, but as a leading developing country. I think we're doing a lot of the right things in moving in that direction. And everything being said, I think we're way ahead of many others in our reach. But we need to embrace change a bit more confidently because change, excuse me, uh, because I think it is uh, a fundamental uh, parameter uh, in globalization now. You will be affected by change, and therefore we need to go out and, and embrace it. Uh, thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate that you've all been here and that you've had me here for the second time in a, in a number of years now, and I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you. We have a microphone. If I could if I ask everybody to raise their hand who has a question just so I get a sense where people are. Okay, great. Let's start right up there in the back. And we do have a microphone. Good. Thank you. You mentioned that uh, one, one of your four res resolution points had to do with Jerusalem. And you suggested that part of the resolution would be to let the parts of Jerusalem that are Jewish be Jewish and the parts that are not Jewish be not Jewish. And I'd be interested to know how you go about defining 
which portions of Jerusalem are Jewish and which portions of Jerusalem are not Jewish, particularly with regard to the mount. Well, I mean, we can get into the details of that. The, you divide Jerusalem east and west, the capitals of the two states. Uh, the specific reference to the Jewish and non-Jewish parts was exactly relating to the, uh, the Holy Basin and, and, and that area because that's where the religious sites are all established. Uh, most of the area, I think I have to draw a distinction between the Western Wall and the Wailing Wall. That's one thing. Uh, most of everything inside the wall is non-Jewish. Uh, above ground is, is non-Jewish. There is a question about the Armenian sector a little bit further down. That would go, in my, in my proposal, on the non-Jewish part of Jerusalem. But because Jews believe that there's a temple below the, uh, the, the mosque, the Palestinian state has to agree that it will not in any way or form, for example, excavate under the mosque unless there's mutual agreement by all the three faith, Abrahamic faiths uh, in that respect. So that's what I meant by Jewish and non-Jewish. Now, it's, it's just very detailed, exactly all the different sites there, but that's the concept. My question is uh, less about whether peace is achievable and, uh, and more about what happens if there is peace in, a, in an agreement. And it has to do with whether um, what the Palestinian people have been through in the last you know, several decades uh, leaves them in a position where they can have enough of an infrastructure to be able to sustain themselves. And then related to that, whether there is uh, uh, so much corruption inside any of the government that uh, it diminishes its ability to be effective. And would you comment on that, please? Sure. Um, there's always this argument, do we have economic development first or peace or peace and economic development? We need to end the conflict. And this is what I mean by a peace agreement. But you are right on target. Given what's happened over the years, unless we create opportunity very quickly thereafter, you will have a very impoverished people among those Palestinian territories. So any peace agreement would ultimately involve also an uh, international effort to help create jobs in, um, in those territories. Uh, Tony Blair is actually working now already on an economic development plan with the World Bank, with the Palestinians, and with the American administration to put the foundation for that. That's a useful step, but in all honesty, if it's not coupled very quickly with the peace process, it will fall flat on its face. So we need to deal with that. In terms of corruption, people argue, well, the state is, the government is corrupt. Keep, don't forget, there's no government. It's not a state yet. You cannot ask them to be held to the standards of accountability that a norm of good governance. If, on the one hand, they're being held accountable for good governance, on the other hand, it's liberation. Tomorrow, it's Hamas. The day after, it's, it's the, the PA. Your point is valid. The donor countries have put constraints on what money they will give unless they can hold it, they can clearly see the transparency in it. And let me add that there's more transparency in the Palestinian budget put forward by the Prime Minister uh, Salam Fayyad than in the Egyptian budget, in the American budget, and in the Israeli budget. It's on the internet. Every line item issue is on the internet. 
But you will always have, in all honesty, some gray areas unless you establish the full institutions of government. So work in parallel on all three issues. Thank you. I've heard you tonight. I'm Mr. Jabe here from Dallas. Uh, discuss expectations and then opportunity. And for some of us who are not as well informed as we'd like to be about creating 760,000 jobs a year uh, on a uh, gross domestic product of $110 billion, I suggest that that's a rather hearty expectation. Now, from the opportunity side, though, we wonder, and I wonder particularly, what is the marketing and sales effort that, go, that must go forward for Palestinians to appreciate the dividend that will come from peace from all throughout the world? Well, when I mentioned the figure of 750,000 new jobs a year, I was talking about Egypt, per se. We need to create that. And I completely agree with you. It is extremely difficult to do. Um, even though we're on the record here, let me bring it to light, so to speak. That GDP is equal to one-third the annual revenue of Walmart. And revenue of Walmart is $330 billion, not the profit, the revenue. So it shows you how, how difficult it is. We are consequently trying to project ourselves as larger than the Egyptian marketplace by having economic zones with North Africa, with Europe, with East Africa, and even striving to do that with uh, an FDA with, uh, with the US, and doing a lot of work in terms of outsourcing, not picking up jobs from other countries by outsourcing. So we're trying to do that. But we will reach an impediment if we can't physically show people, the investors, that in our neighborhood, most of the region is at peace. So that's really what's, what's driving us. To convince the Palestinians, again, the chicken or the egg. If you tell the Palestinians you get the dividends of peace, they say, well, fine, but we don't see peace. Uh, if you tell them if you do this, you'll get peace. There's no guarantee uh, of that happening. And if you, they don't do this, people say you can't have peace because uh, you can't do this. We need, frankly, as, as you asked, you need to work on all three. We need to have a peace process. We need to put together a development plan, which is actually being put together. It's going quicker than the peace process. And ultimately, there will have to be a tremendous amount of resources poured into this package. Palestinians are tremendously productive people. They're probably the more secular, by the way, of all the region. And they're the, they have the highest education rate, bizarrely enough, in the Arab world, not numbers, rates. Um, but they live in a, in, a, in, a, in, in a territory of conflict. So there's, a, there's only a point where believers become non-believers on this. Ambassador, having uh, waded through uh, Ambassador Ross's book, The Missing Peace, which described the peace process that went, went on for years between uh, the Palestinians and the Israelis with American help and Egyptian help, uh, the thing that struck me about that was, number one, the intensity of that process that lasted for years, went through Ehud Barak, Shimon Perez, you know, the whole list. And the thing that struck me about it was two things. Number one, towards the end of that process, many of those issues which you've talked about, Jerusalem and security, et cetera, were very close to being solved. 
and and maybe Arafat you know, walked away from it for whatever reason, or the Israelis walked away from it for whatever reason. But number one, the, the issues were very close to being solved, and number two, the process was very intense, and uh, from both the Egyptian side and the American side to bring those two parties together. The thing I'd like you to comment on now is, from an American perspective, I don't see the intensity in the process that's going to be required in order to make that a deal, irrespective of how it works out. And I would just like you to comment on that. Sure. Um, again, I, I like to be very straightforward. Um, I think Dennis's book is testimony to what we were doing, what we did, and how we failed. Because it's all about process. Too much detail, people getting lost in the, in the, in the in the detail rather than in the fundamental issues. Uh, President Bush, when he came into office, immediately, very, cl very, very quickly, pronounced himself that he wanted to see a Palestinian state beside an, an Israeli state. But then there was no process after that. You can't reach a solution if you don't want to admit what the issues are. And you can't uh, create the solution that you've just announced if you don't work the process. When President Clinton called for the Camp David negotiations, it was the first time ever that Palestinians and Israelis had actually discussed, in a formal sense, Jerusalem refugees, uh, the territory they had discussed, but not Jerusalem and refugees. And while Camp David failed, I wrote then publicly that it wasn't a failure, it just wasn't a success. Because they actually discussed these issues, and that's very important. Uh, Arafat wasn't offered a deal on, on, on those four issues, frankly. Uh, Arafat made a mistake later on in December, I think, on the, uh, on, the, on the Clinton parameters rather than at Camp David. He was not really offered a deal at Camp David. And again, you were, you were, you were fair. You said both sides may have, may have walked back on this. But let me also say, you need to know where you're going, speak to the issues clearly, but you need to engage in the negotiating process because neither side believes in the other side. And if you leave them alone, they will neither negotiate nor believe in this. They need, America has to be there, Egypt has to be there. What do we two have to do differently? And I was there with Dennis many times. President Clinton, who put his heart and soul in, behind this process, and I've talked to the President before and after that. I told him that I think you made a mistake in that you were going to Arafat and saying, this is all Barak can accept. Well, frankly, Arabs saying no to Israelis or Israelis saying no to the Arabs, it's not the issue. I mean, it, it's been going on for generations. Uh, he would go to Barak and say, this is all Arafat can accept. And again, Barak was quite, Barak and, and Arafat spoke for five minutes at Camp David. One time for five minutes. They were in different rooms, weren't talking to each other at all. What did Clinton miss? He didn't do what George Bush, 41, did, or Carter did, or for that matter, Nixon did. When he went to both sides, when they went to both sides and said, you need to do this for America. Nixon told us, we will help you achieve peace if you get the Soviets out of the Middle East, or help us. George Bush 41, Carter, in talking to Sadat and Begin, said, 
America needs peace in the region, and I think this is a fair deal, one offer after the other. He didn't go to Sadat and say, Begin wants this. That wasn't a convincing argument. Or to Begin saying, Sadat wants this. It was, he's offering a, a, a deal, and America needs this. As America's friend, don't say no to me. Clinton didn't do that. George Bush, 41, literally forced the parties to go to Madrid and regionalize the process, because after the Iraq war, he wanted to show that America's role in the region was different. We need to go back to that, where America starts using its leverage, saying this is in America's interest. Not only is it in Israel's interest and the Palestinian interest. Ask, let challenge people to say no to America rather than to each other. On our side, and I was one of the negotiators, for a not long number of years, we were doing an excellent job, putting the Palestinians right in front of the table all the time, sitting right behind them, literally. I mean, we'd keep them there for hours, and I'd be outside. And when they'd break up, I'd sit down with the Palestinians and Israelis and see what the problem, and then I'd bring them to breakfast. And we'd talk, talk it over a little bit more. I wouldn't be in the middle of the room, all, the, all depended on. They had to go through the process of negotiations. Further down the road, as the process got a bit untidy, we started being in front of the Palestinians rather than behind them. And therefore, we ended up negotiating. They didn't go through the process themselves of trying to rationalize this. And, and it's a lesson we drew. We, our commitment to peace didn't change, and it still stands. An Arab-Israeli peace that makes Israel comfortable and the Palestinians comfortable. And it's not going to happen unless America gets back to its role and unless we get back to our role. But we don't have much time left. We have enough time to strike a deal this year. We don't have an, a generation to pass this over to somebody else. Uh, I have a follow-up question, Your Excellency, about what does it take for the American administration to start early on during the administration to be engaged and do what you want them to do rather than waiting till the last minute as President Bush doing uh, now or as Clinton did in July of 2000. What does it take to have them get on board early on? Thank you. What it takes, we don't have. Uh, and and you're, you're raising an excellent point. When, when Anwar Sadat, in 1973, actually 1972, uh, sent his national security advisor to Henry Kissinger uh, up here in America, and he asked him to help Egypt and Israel negotiate peace in the Middle East. Dr. Kissinger, quite understandably, said, I don't have time for you. I'm busy with the Soviets. Uh, the, the Egyptian went back. He told Sadat this, and Sadat went to war in 1973 to create a circumstance where people would attract attention and move on the negotiations. Just before the war, because Sadat wanted the war to be an Egyptian success, not a Soviet story. He threw out all the Soviet experts. And when Henry Kissinger came to Egypt immediately after the war, he went to the Egyptian politicians and said, why in the world didn't you tell us you were going to throw out the Soviets? If you had said that, we would have offered you something in exchange. I tell you the story because at that point in time, the Middle East was part of the a bipolar world and the competition between the Americans and the Soviets. So 
you could argue it's in America's strategic interest and or the Soviet strategic interest to play a different role in the Middle East as the opportunity arose, irrespective of domestic American politics. Today there is no nation-state threat equivalent to America, as I was mentioning. Therefore, you will not be driven by your national interest, per se, but more by your domestic politics. And that's why you tend to get engaged in this because it's a function of fear, not a function of opportunity, at the end of every term in office <coughs> for your president. If, on the other hand, you were promoting your foreign policy with your own people, that we have an opportunity for peace in the Middle East here. This will help Israel. It will help America. You will have the American public saying, yes, I think this is a, a useful thing to do. And consequently, American politicians will believe we can do this when the opportunity arises rather than when it doesn't cost me anything. Uh, so I, I'm serious when I say, I, I don't want to be presumptuous, but I am serious when I say I actually think it's in I say this because it's in Egypt's interest, but I also think it's in America's interest, to start talking to your people that foreign policy has to be based on opportunity and risk analysis rather than simply based on fear. And, I, and um, I've, Jim, I've told you quite often, I think the World Affairs Council's work, for example, is tremendously important because I travel around America all year round, except maybe for August. Uh, and I have never seen, I, and I live, by the way, those of you who have come to Washington, I live on Mass Avenue, which has more think tanks than I can name, and more experts on international relations than anywhere else in the world. But I've never seen a, world, a country that has such a wealth of experience and expertise where foreign policy is not really an issue for the average person in the street. You have all this expertise right down that road. But you go into mid-America, and there's no real interest in foreign policy. Iraq, by the way, is a domestic issue for America, not a foreign policy issue. Because the whole debate is about our troops, rather than the analysis of the implications, good or bad. So I urge you, really, I, my long answer to your question is, unless there's a strategic balance there is not this is, that's not going to happen, except if you change how you sell foreign policy to your own people as an investment in the future. Every answer I give it pops up 10 more questions. It's amazing. Thank you very much. On a lighter note, I don't know why you're the ambassador to the United States. You ought to be the ambassador to Ramallah or Jerusalem or to Israel. Your ideas are terrific. Well, they um, haven't worked yet, but I'll Maybe try. you should call the Secretary General of the UN and offer your services. Thank you. Thank you. You have said nothing tonight about Iran. I wonder if you can share with us your thoughts of how does Iran now play in this region? Uh, you have Hezbollah, you have Hamas, and you have Iran, and I'd appreciate your sure. uh, well-thought-out comments. Well, I, I chose not to because I just don't have enough time. Uh, and I'm going to talk a lot about Iran and the Middle East tomorrow in Austin, so I get bored with myself. But uh, you, you raise a very serious question. Iran is an important country in the Middle East. It's not going away. And we deal with, as Egypt, we deal with it in that manner. We have no interest in changing the Iranian regime 
<coughs> that's not what we get into. Uh, but we are concerned about some Iranian policies. Even without the physical evidence, the rhetoric coming out of Iran on issues like Lebanon or, frankly, the Palestinian issue has not been helpful. Even without the physical evidence of whether they're arming or not arming, uh, there has been also a uh, concern about their posture vis-a-vis -vis Iraq as well. We, of course, have a problem of, about the ambiguity on their nuclear program also. Not their right to a nuclear program. I don't debate rights about the motivation behind their nuclear program. Now, how do you deal with this? By asking them for something that can't possibly work? Or by trying to be rational and challenging them to respond to that? To, solve, to, to challenge Iran, you need to address Iran's security concerns in the Gulf as well. You can't ignore that and say, well, you're all wrong, stop it. Or you can do that until you get hoarse. It's not going to get you anywhere. Uh, I, er, I suggest, consequently, holding dual conferences in the, on security in the Gulf. One on security in the larger sense. Who has influence where? What kind of military deployment exists for which country? Where? Including, by the way, how long you're going to stay there or not? Look, if I was put on the axis of evil, I'd be scared. Uh, and another one on the nonproliferation issue. I say this because nonproliferation is an urgent issue. And it may take, it shouldn't take as long as dealing with the ultimate security issues. But in all honesty, how can you possibly deal with this nonproliferation issue if Iran will say, okay, I will answer the questions about our program with the IEA, and we urge them to do that, because that's what's raising suspicions. But you have Israel in the region that isn't even a member of the NPT. So why do you deal with that? And why are you being holier than, um, well, we'll get into that. But uh, So we are concerned about Iran using what I call negative leverage using n problematic opportunities to gain leverage politically. That's what we've seen in many parts of the region. But we are also interested in engaging them seriously about their needs, not their wants, their security needs, not their security wants. And that needs to be done with you involved, but also with the regional states involved, and I think on a two-track approach, two conferences. How would you describe the relationship between Egypt and the United States? Uh, describe relations between? Yeah. Well, it's like a Catholic marriage. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I've been married for... <laughs> Why in the world do I do these things? Uh, I've been married for, uh, for over 30 years. And I wouldn't give away a day of it. And there have been problems. First of all, couldn't imagine there were problems. Then you get bored a little bit. Then you think about different things. Uh, then you get distracted. And then you decide, well, is all this worth it or not? And you look around and you see three beautiful kids, three grandchildren, a tremendous uh, uh, lifetime between us. And 
Sure, we've disagreed. If we didn't disagree with each other, we'd be the same person. I actually speak with myself often, but I mean, that's even beyond that. The U.S. and Egypt will continue to need each other for another generation at the very least. You can't, one out of every four Middle Easterners lives in Egypt. If you have energy interests, strategic security interests, want to know what's happening in the Middle East as America, and you only have four choices of where you can work, three of the four will be Egypt because it's more cost effective. Secondly, of all of your relations in the Middle East, Israel included, by the way, Israel, Turkey, all your relations, there's only one country that has fought with America in Africa and in the Arab world, worked on terrorism, and as well as work globally. Every other country in the region has helped America here or there or here or there. There's only one country that has done the same amount, the same kind of work in more than one uh, area. So, to put it in, in, in a business sense, you get a lot of bang for your buck as Americans working and investing with Egyptians. Same applies to us. Look, if I want to create, as, as you mentioned, it's, it's a, 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 I mean, you can have nightmares trying to come up with 750,000 new jobs out of one-third of Walmart's revenue. I can't do that unless I'm a player in the international arena. And frankly, for the next generation, if I'm talking about World Trade Organization issues, environmental issues, labor laws, opening markets, international security, I will be engaging America and debating America in all of those arenas. Now, even though, and that's why I said it, it, it's, a, it's a marriage, we will never be the same. Your um, the, the, the recent steps taken by the proposal made by the president, by your president, to, to facilitate the economy would generate $150 billion into the economy. That's less than 1% of your economy. That's more than our economy. So we are not going to have the same position at WTO as America. It can't possibly happen. But I can't afford not to have a strong relationship with America if I want to be a player internationally. Do we disagree? Sure we disagree. You, I, I'm often asked, what is the most difficult question, difficult issue I faced in seven years here as an ambassador? And everybody assumes I'm going to say Iraq, the Palestinian territories, the reform, human rights, all these issues. It's none of those. It's trying to explain here in America, a 7,000-year-old country with no sense of urgency. Egypt is not insecure. I mean, things go, things come, we don't. <laughs> we're, we're here and we're going to stay here. Our time is healthy. You guys, you, you, for Americans, yeah, if yeah. it hasn't happened already, you already believe you're late. I mean, you're 300 years old, you want things done, and you want them done immediately. But it's been a wonderful challenge to do that, because at the end of the day, with all of the ups and downs of the relationship, 
if I look at it, it's been a very healthy marriage with a tremendous number of achievements, a couple of disagreements, but we're still there and we will still be there for a long time to come. Thank you very much. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.